Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. And Dr. Chan, it's great to hang out with you again. I do look forward to our weekly meetings. It's funny, I was talking to my folks over the weekend. I was up visiting my mom for her birthday and kind of showing her, like, how do you listen to the podcast? They were listening to it. I just explained to them how then Alexa device, like to say, Alexa, play Public Health Out Loud. And there it was for them to listen to, and they really enjoyed that. But today I'm excited to have Dr. Jonathan Curtis here. Dr. Curtis, we're going to talk about tropical diseases. Dr. Curtis, welcome to Public Health Out Loud. Thanks so much, Jim and Phil. It's great to be here. And, and Dr. Curtis, you've had a great history. You've done a lot in this world. You've helped us a lot with the pandemic, which thank you so much for doing that. But let's start with our first question is, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, I am the Stanley Amerenson Professor and Chair of the Department of Pathology and Lab Medicine at Brown and its affiliated hospitals. I direct the MD-PhD program at Brown, and I've spent the last 30 or so years working on vaccines and therapeutics for tropical infectious diseases. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Curtis, so much for joining us. Uh, you've been a big help to us uh, here at the Department of Health during the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Curtis uh, did co-lead the uh, testing and validation task force that we had early on in the pandemic. It was invaluable in terms of helping advise us on rolling out testing. And as everyone knows, we were one of the leaders uh, in the country rolling testing. So thank you, Dr. Curtis, for that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the future uh, in, a, in a few minutes here. But I want to get back to your sort of your primary area of expertise on neglect neglected tropical diseases. So what are neglected tropical diseases? Yeah, so neglected tropical diseases, it's sort of a catchphrase for a group of typically infectious diseases that disproportionately affect the really the sort of most downtrodden and under-resourced and most vulnerable uh, populations on our planet. So typically, uh, individuals living in the poorest of the poor countries that frequently are in uh, the uh, equatorial regions, which happen to, for biologic reasons, foster infectious disease transmissions. Um, they typically are diseases that dominantly affect children and pregnant women, uh, typically. Uh, and most importantly, uh, there are diseases that are massively underfunded in proportion to the misery they cause. And so that is what gets the great phrase neglected tropical disease it was coined by an infectious disease doctor back in the 70s at Case Western, a, a fellow by the name of Ken Warren, who's sort of a father figure in the field. And it includes things like schistosomiasis, this nasty worm disease where male and female worms are living just south of your liver, constantly copulating laying eggs that cause all kinds of scars in your liver, disaster disease like that, diseases like hookworm infection, worms that live in your intestines and suck your blood so that you become anemic, diseases like onchocerciasis, river blindness, worms that again live in your body, they crawl, baby worms crawl all over your skin and die causing all this itching. And when they do that in front of your eyes, your eyes sort of, you get this opaque corneas, you can't see anymore, um, really horrible things. And then a disease called malaria, which technically isn't a neglected tropical disease because it gets just enough funding not to be totally neglected, but most people would consider it as, you know, one of the most important uh, tropical infectious diseases. And frankly, from my point of view, it is neglected given that it's the greatest killer of children on the planet. So that's sort of what a neglected tropical disease is. You know, and, and it's it's wonderful the way you explain that. I mean, you're right. Bookworm, acrosychiasis, schistosomiasis, 
These are things that most Americans don't really have any kind of familiarity with. And quite frankly, it's things I learned about in medical school, but like I've never treated anyone with hookworm. You know, malaria I have treated. And, and, and I think it really gets this larger issue of, you know, really they're not diseases that we see, but they're still important diseases for the planet. You know, and I mean, one of the things I think about with malaria, the reason I've treated people with malaria was when I was in the Navy, I was in South America, I was in Guyana doing tropical medicine. And you know, I remember having a toddler who for all the world looked like he had meningitis. And the parasitologist who was with us as I'm getting ready to do a spinal tap, which I really didn't want to do in the jungle. Uh, the parasitologist says, don't do the spinal tap. This little guy's got you know, plasmodium falciparum growing in his blood. So I was able to you know, shove some mefloquine down his throat and he lived for another day. And that's really the sort of the futility of tropical medicine sometimes is, you know, you lived for another day, but you still live in an area where there's all these tropical diseases there isn't clean water. There isn't, you know, a toilet. It, it just, it's a hot mess, literally a hot mess. And it really brings me back to just talking about what is malaria and, and why should we care about malaria? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I frequently frame this, particularly when I'm talking to politicians and sort of uh, um, uh, in, institutional investors, I, I frame this in the context of, well, you can do it because it's the greatest killer of children on the planet. You know, the World Health Report for 2021 came out literally yesterday. So you guys are prescient in your timing with this interview. Um, and the situation's getting worse. 627,000 children under the age of five died of malaria last year. In the places I work in, in uh, East Africa, the under five mortality rate is 25%. You know, put that in perspective, one out of four of your kids dying before the age of five. It's intolerable. And so you can think about why we should focus on this simply because of its enormous humanitarian burden. Can I be really frank? I haven't seen that logic move too many politicians or institutional investors. Some yes, most no. What gets them, frankly, is if you want your economy to do well, you need to sell more widgets. And we've sold a lot of widgets in the developed world. The next market is the developing world. And the developing world isn't going to buy your widget unless they're healthy and prosperous. And so health, literally health, is the bedrock for building out your economy. And it actually appalls me personally, but that argument actually is the, is the, is, is the most sort of effective argument that, I, that I, I've used. So for those two reasons, the third reason is national security. You can't show me a community or a country that has one quarter of its population dying of malaria that is going to have political stability. And so when there's political instability, you end up with international and international strife. And very quickly, we see ourselves getting dragged into this. So there's really, it's three parts to the stool. A, it's the right thing to do because it's the greatest public health problem for children on the planet. Nothing actually comes close. Two, investment for economic growth. And three, political stability. That's sort of the three reasons I think we should be focused on this more than we are. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Curtis. Certainly as an infectious disease physician, uh, I've treated lots of these, quote, weird things. Uh, and I remember a few years ago, in fact, I was uh, I uh, sometimes do international clinics. I was over in Ethiopia and doing some of this crazy stuff. I was seeing leprosy and leishmaniasis, something that uh, you didn't mention, and all the other things uh, that, that you mentioned. And, I, you know, it's one of the triumphs, I think, of our public health system in the U.S. and certainly our clinical system. Uh, where we don't have a lot of these. Now, some of them are endemic to the tropical areas, but we used to have malaria, right, in the United States. Uh, one thing I'm just curious about, you know, 
bringing it back to COVID for a second, uh, there's been some interesting uh, patterns, repercussions of the pandemic. Uh, I've been reading some uh, about uh, some uh, data about, for example, dengue, which is transmitted by malaria. But just thinking broad, broadly, how the pandemic has affected work patterns and living patterns, right? And I think, as you mentioned, malaria, which is mosquito-born, uh, getting it, you know, through the bite of a mosquito, and thinking about people working at home or not commuting, not going into cities, living more in rural areas, and thinking about how this is going to affect some of the patterns of what we see with some of these diseases. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. What do we expect on a, a global level? How do we expect the pandemic to affect some of these, especially mosquito-borne diseases and, and through patterns of working, et cetera? One of the, that's a, it's a great question um, and a lot of elements to it. Let me just hone in on one of them. Um, so you, you definitely, you pointed out malaria is a mosquito transmitted disease. You know, you get it by the bite of a female mosquito. First thing she does is she spits in you to anticoagulate her straw. Parasites go in, go to the liver. Once they're in the liver, they're growing in the liver. They pop out of the liver two weeks later, infect your red blood cells causing them to lice and rip open, which is really a disaster. So that's kind of malaria, the disease. Here's the funny epidemiologic point I wanna uh, draw attention to. Beginning of the pandemic, I'm coming back to the pandemic part. In the beginning of the COVID pandemic, those of us in the global health world were petrified because the health infrastructure in the, in the developing countries we're talking about is Calling it marginal, and I don't mean in this in any disrespect, but to call it marginal is really to overstate its capacity. It is operating at the very knife edge of capacity. And so our fear, and this is you know the onslaught of malaria, TB, lepto, I mean, the number of things that are stressing these, these um, uh, developing country health systems is enormous, underfunding. The fear was as COVID rolls through, the body count would be insane. You know, there are towns in Kenya where there aren't respirators. Like there is no possibility of you getting external ventilation, you're dead. So this notion of un incalculable death rates was absolutely a, a real and present fear those of us in the global health community had. And that has not materialized. And so there, many ways to think about that data. First off, you can impugn the data. Maybe they're dying and we just don't know they're dying from, from COVID. The kind of body count we were expecting was so high. There's no way that these deaths are occurring and we're simply not counting them, even though the demographic counting systems for death are not as developed as we'd like them to be. None of us believe that they are dying and we just don't know about it. So that leaves us with why. Why in malarious areas, for instance, is the death rate, if you actually look on the Johns Hopkins website for you know, death per, per 100,000 uh, you know, case fatality rate, and, um, uh, if you actually look at that, sometimes it's an order and a half of magnitude, you know, tenfold lower than, than the most developed countries. And the question is why? That to me is a fascinating question that might have real world implications. And the short answer is we don't know why. It is the immune system different in individuals who are bombarded by tropical infectious diseases such that they don't make a profound inflammatory response when they get COVID. And therefore they don't get uh, uh, severe uh, pulmonary compromise and end up in the hospital. Is that the reason? 
Are there cross-reactive antibodies? You know, the, the list of hypotheses is large, um, but I, I just wanted to highlight, we have been blessed by the fact that COVID doesn't seem to be as bad in some of the countries that are least prepared to deal with it. It's, I think that's fascinating. I mean, this is one of the things that's fun about being in science and fun about being in medicine is it's easy to have questions and sometimes you can even have the fun of answering them, which is what we really call research. And, you know, I think that's just important to just highlight that research is important. And I think, you know, you talk a little bit about COVID and of course the COVID vaccine is really a big issue in the United States. But I think, you know, it begs the question, Malaria is a big problem. So why isn't there a vaccine for malaria? And is there any hope there will be? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so first, I want to just jump on the bandwagon and say never before in human history has a existential threat arrived. And within six months, the most effective vaccine ever created is being trialed in humans. That is a tour de force and everybody involved should be incredibly proud of themselves. But more importantly, I think our general public should really just raise their hands and clap and applaud this intervention and embrace science. It's unbelievable the tools that we have delivered in such a short period of time for this pandemic. And the only thing that's more unbelievable than that is the resistance we see to people taking them but I'm gonna leave that bag of worms alone for a little while. It is a bag of worms though, but please continue. <laughs> so um, malaria vaccines. So here's the thing, COVID was easy. COVID was easy. The target to attack, straightforward. Absolutely obvious, you need to block the spike protein and in particular the receptor binding domain. Once the sequence for COVID was, was unearthed or, or sequenced, Within three weeks, the target was obvious. And then it became an engineering solution. It turns out the malaria world and the COVID vaccine world intersect over lipid encapsulated mRNA. So we actually have a malaria vaccine in development. It's on the exact same lipid encapsulated mRNA platform as the BioNTech vaccine, because I gave a grand rounds once and the, one of the two inventors of the, of the BioNTech platform, the lipid encapsulated mRNA platform, Drew Weissman down at UPenn, who is giving a, uh, a, a, a Department of Medicine research talk this summer up at Brown. So make sure you get on that list because he's a great speaker. Uh, he, he heard the malaria talk and he called me into his office afterwards and said, you should really put this on the mRNA platform. This was in 2017, Jim and Phil. Everyone in 2017 thought lipid encapsulated mRNA, you know, the platform was crazy talk. I thought he was crazy. And look what he did. He basically saved us. He, he and his, um, he has a compatriot, uh, uh, the Turkish uh, scientist. So why is there no vaccine for malaria? Because the targets aren't obvious. Malaria has about 20 times as much genetic material with which to subvert and co-opt our immune system. It's really a tricky parasite. It changes its surface all the time. Every couple of days, it has different clothes on. So if you attack the parasite from two days ago, today's parasite will look different and your antibodies won't be very effective. So it's really been tough. We've been trying for 45 years as the discipline to make a malaria vaccine, and we really haven't produced a broadly effective vaccine to date. 
So thank you, Dr. Curtis. You know, I was, uh, I, as always, perused the headlines, and I, I do know that there was a malaria vaccine uh, that has been now endorsed by the WHO a couple months ago in, in October, I believe. What do you know about this new malaria vaccine, and, uh, it, you know, does it work? Yep, great question. So um, to call it a new vaccine is kind of funny. It actually was cloned in the early 80s. The actual protein was discovered in the 60s. Um, it is one of the more immunogenic proteins the parasite has. It wants you to make antibodies against it. And so I ask you, if the parasite wants you to make antibodies against something, do you think it's a great vaccine target? The answer is no. Let me step back. It's kind of, it's, it's complicated, but this vaccine is important because it has some efficacy. In the phase three studies, it reduced severe malaria by about 17% in infants, which is the group that were really bear the greatest uh, death toll. So it is marginally protective. Now, 17% reduction in mortality when you have 600,000 children dying, that's a lot of living children. So from that point of view, it's fabulous. From the point of view is, are we done with this? Nowhere near. We have to do so much better. There are a couple of safety issues with the vaccine, unlike the lipid encapsulated mRNA platform for COVID. Uh, there are a couple of safety issues with the um, with the RTSS vaccine that are that are being continuing to be analyzed. Uh, it takes four doses to get that seventeen percent protection for a year, and will likely take annual booster doses. Which you know, no surprise there. But um, to get you know, you really need four doses before you see much protection. We clearly need to do better, I think is the answer. It's been 40 years in the making. The idea that there aren't 15 other vaccines in late stage clinical trials is really problematic. It's emblematic of the fact that we are underfunding this. It took a billion dollars of, of government money infused into the race for a COVID vaccine. The target was pretty obvious but it still took a billion dollars to pull this off. 40 years into the work on a malaria vaccine, we now know some of the proper targets. We think we know, and when I say we, I mean the field, thinks we know what we should be targeting. There's only one thing we're missing, the billion dollars. And so I think um, as, we, as we get our message across to the funding agencies, and it's really gotta be government, I mean, it takes big money to do these things. Um, and I think if COVID has taught us nothing, it's that with the right resources and the right vaccine platforms, we can develop effective vaccines incredibly quickly. So yeah. I think and the I, gauntlet I think is down for us to, 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 to move the same approach into malaria. Yeah, and I think you really illustrate a lot of points there, not least of which is when you look at COVID, you know, really it was where there was a will, there was a way is partly true, but it was really where there was a wallet, there was a way. And I think that really just gets to the issue I've just noticed in science is science can move as fast as funding. And it really did move fast when it came to funding for COVID. I want to pivot back to testing because you really were very helpful at the beginning of the pandemic with us with testing. So in the beginning of this pandemic, I remember you helping us out with our testing and validation task force. Dr. Kalienda was involved with that. Awesome. And you were you were a big help with us. And, you know, one of the things that we saw early in the pandemic is a lot of testing. And we have a really good testing program in the state. 
What's your sense of where we are with COVID-19 testing at this point in the pandemic? What are your thoughts on that? Wow. So on the spot here, um, what I see coming, and I, you know, I want to project this as a future thought, not what I see today, but what I see coming is a situation where we have vaccines that protect you very well from getting very sick. Those vaccines do a very good job of preventing you from getting infected, but not to the same degree. We're still going to see infection. We're still going to send it's going to be largely asymptomatic infection amongst the vaccinated. And so one wonders, when will we be in a position where we're not as focused on transmission abatement as we are focused on disease abatement? And I don't think we're there yet, so I don't want to go too far down this uh, this rocky road. but you know, if you make the parallel in a vaccinated individual today, what their risk of severe disease is, it's really quite low. It's really quite low. And so should we still be worried about transmission? That's a, that is a, it's a philosophical and, and a sort of political question we have to ask ourselves. I don't believe we're going to be in a position where we can vaccinate transmission away. That's what I believe. And, and so I think the role for testing is going to, you know, evolve over time. I'm curious, what do you guys think? I'm, you know, let, let make this more, more interactive here. It, well, you know, it's interesting you bring it up that way, because one thing you're kind of hypothesizing at some point is when will SARS-CoV-2 become a common cold? Yes. And, and really what's interesting is this is one of the lies we've been fighting from the entire pandemic, because there's been a subset of the population in the United States that that's they opened with that. And we haven't been able to persuade them other from that concept, which is really part of why we're in the mess. We're still in like, it's really one of those things where, you know, I think I said this a long time ago, but after Memorial Day as a country, we're in the optional part of the pandemic. Because yep. if we simply got enough people vaccinated, we really could have vaccinated away before yep. Delta became dominant here. We totally. just didn't do it. You know, we just, did, we we just didn't have the national will, right? It's crazy. I think we had the best tool ever delivered to our doorstep in remarkable time. And we choked. We absolutely choked as a nation. Yes, I agree. Well, our opportunity to 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 use vaccines and other public and the public health measures, masking and all, all those good things, our opportunity to interdict transmission, I think, is gone. I, I I'm curious, Phil, what do you think? And you know, kind of this whole theme of misinformation. I think uh, what makes misinformation the worst and the most powerful is when there's strands of truth weaved in to misinformation. So I think the fact of the matter is, is for a lot of people, uh, COVID nineteen can just be a common cold, right? Yes. And our difficulty, of course, is predicting who it's going to cause a quote common cold and who it's going to kill. And of yep. course, there are you know risks, you know, older age and other comorbidities. But at the end of the day, we're still not great at predicting who's going to get really sick uh, and who's not. But then also uh, going back to testing too, for a moment, you know, there's, there's soon to be uh, announced by the federal government, a push uh, certainly for people to have more access to point of care antigen tests. And we've talked Dr. Curtis a little bit about this, but I'm curious about uh, just uh, telling folks who are listening uh, from the public here, uh, what are your thoughts about the, the antigen testing and, and how we should use them and, uh, you know, the, the tests that people can buy at their local pharmacy? Yeah, so those antigen tests are reasonably sensitive if you're symptomatic. And I think that's their real role. And the idea being you have, a you know, a, a sniffle cold fever, you do your antigen test quickly, 
And the idea to do it quickly is so that you're not transmitting to your friends and family. And, and then quarantine for the period of time necessary if you're positive. Or the other, the other advantage of doing that is if you're positive and you fit into certain age, age and risk categories, we actually have remarkably effective therapy again. You know, we have two tools to keep the infected from getting very sick. We have drugs, we have, vac we have vaccines, we have drugs, and we have you know, uh, uh, oral drugs and we have antibodies. But three tools, really. Um, and so I think if assuming you're vaccinated, please be vaccinated. <laughs> please be vaccinated. Once you're vaccinated, if you still have symptoms, it is still wise to test. And the more rapid the test, the, the more useful it is. Because if you have symptoms and you're COVID positive and you fit into a certain risk category, we have great therapies for you. You don't need to die of this infection. You know, it reminds me of, you know, the German health minister. Did you guys see his, uh, his, his quote in the build? Yeah. Uh, in der Bild, uh, you know, by the end of the winter, all Germans will either be vaccinated, recovering, or dead. You know, he said it in such a brilliantly blunt German way. Um, but that's the choice, guys. We can get vaccinated. I mean, Germany did go towards national vaccination, which is a very interesting you know, place to land. I, I, I don't, and I think it's interesting. One of the things we're going to see throughout this is this natural experiment of different countries approaching this different ways. But, you know, until we get a global plan, which is really what we need is a global plan, um, we're just going to be living with this pandemic. This has been a great time that's just really flown by. We've talked about neglected tropical diseases. We got into malaria, then we got into COVID testing. We did a lot today. This is great. So nice public health potpourri for today. One of our traditions at Public Health Out Loud, though, is to go to Dr. Chan for the final word. Dr. Chan, what's the final word for today? Well, thank you, Dr. McDonald. I do want to thank Dr. Curtis for joining us today. And thank you in general for all the good work you've done for the state of Rhode Island and really across the world. So in closing, I do want to leave folks with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is by Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson. Life is a journey, not a destination. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Starnock, technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great. <laughs>